Where are you from? These hordes of Asian people. And then all of a sudden, when I'm about to like reach an epiphany, Jing Chong, I want to talk. Hey everyone, you're listening to What's the Bubble Tea. I'm your co-host, Hilary Valenzuela. And my name is Philippe Tao, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of our podcast. Uh, we're back after a long break, school as usual. Woo! But like always, feel free to leave us reviews on iTunes, check us out on SoundCloud, send us love messages, hate messages, we love them all. Um, and so, what is our bubble tea this week, Hilary? Our bubble tea. So there's going to be a new Netflix show. Uh, called Always Be My Baby, and it is produced by Ali Wong, who's this awesome comedian, um, and the whole cast is Asian American, so we're just super, super excited about it. I don't know, when does it come out? Uh, it's, it's like 2019, so we still have a full year. We'll have Crazy Rich Asians in the meantime. To, like, <laughs> to hold uh, us over. <laughs> right, yeah, but um, it has like a star-side cast with a bunch of, like Hillary said, a bunch of awesome Asian American actors, and it's a rom-com too, right? It, yeah, that's okay. what the thing said. Yes. We have a special guest this week, too. So we want to introduce Mia. Say hello. Hi, Mia. Hi. Um, my name is Mia Sato. I am Hillary's friend <laughs> <laughs> and have been in a great group chat called Asian Sisters with Philippe and Hillary for the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. So we've been trying to time. wrangle all of us together. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I'm um, a mixed Asian. Uh, my dad is Japanese, and I'm excited to chat about Asian things, yes. Asian American things. Well, the funny thing was, today's our first, uh, me and I, our first time meeting, we've been Twitter friends for a while, but <laughs> like the first thing that happened today was that we realized we're both reading A Little Life by Hanan Yanagihara, which is also <laughs> a really good book by so Asian, good. an Asian author. Yeah. Um, so that was a really funny bit, but today we're going to be talking a lot about, uh, appropriation, love it, hate it, <laughs> it's exhausting, but I feel like it's a good topic for us to talk about since it seems like that seems to also be a dominant discourse a lot in Asian American circles, right? Yeah, we've kind of been holding it over your guys' head this whole time, but we're, we're finally going to talk about appropriation, um, and like get deep into it and, uh, talk about... Our feelings on it, um, the recent events that have happened leading up to this episode as well. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about it, please? Yeah, so there's been a few lately. There's the Chi Pao controversy that happened about a month ago. Um, so if you're not sure, there was a high school girl who, who's white, and she decided to wear a Chi Pao to prom. Um, and she claimed that she found it at an antique store and or like a vintage store and wore it to prom and posted the photos on Twitter and immediately, um, no surprise, received a ton of backlash, um, thousands of hate tweets, and she blew up overnight in the tw- and not only online but uh, on media coverage. They even verified her Twitter account because uh, she was getting villainized so much for apparently appro- appropriating Chinese culture. And I think um, controversies like this aren't anything new, of course, but I think what was interesting about this one was the way that uh, she was talked about in the media, in media coverage and how it created lots of debates on what constitutes as appropriation or if people were just easily offended by her wearing a chi pao to prom. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that too later on in our own thoughts on it. And then another incident that happened a couple weeks ago was um, at the royal wedding, 
Prince Harry's ex, Cressida Jones, wore a dress designed by Eponine London, and it was actually made out of traditional Hmong fabric and looked like a um, traditional Hmong dress, but it was part of a fashion line called, like, Tribe. I think the name of the line was just called Tribal, and uh, according to, like, a Minnesota Public Radio article, they said that, like, Eponine London, the designer, um, sourced the fabrics from antique shops in the north of Thailand to make these dresses, and so the Hmong community was upset about it being labeled as tribal because they felt like it was kind of demeaning the Hmong people and their clothing and their culture. Mm-hmm. And then, do you want to talk about the next yeah, one? Yeah, so there was an article that came out um, at the end of May on Refinery21 written by Andrew Chow, and the article's article is called let's be real asian and black artists aren't celebrating each other through hip-hop and it was kind of in response to Nicki minaj's chun li and a lot of the live performances that she's been doing um it uses a lot of like asian aesthetic um that's kind of like all over the place um like there's japanese aesthetic there's chinese and vietnamese like kind of influences on the set design and like the choreography and she uses Asian dancers, which I honestly think is pretty cool that she hired Asian dancers to do that. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually a plus. Um, but basically the article is in response to that, and it's talking about how like Asian aesthetic has been used a lot in, um, in hip-hop and like the ways that it's been done really, really well and the ways that it hasn't really been done well. But then it, the article also goes into like um, how Asian Americans uh, kind of appropriate black culture as well, and it's just kind of this back and forth of kind of taking each other's like cultural um symbolism and things like that and using it for aesthetic purposes um or just kind of using them incorrectly and then it also goes deeper into like the anti-blackness like the very um explicit anti-blackness that asians tend to have and i think it just has it's a really nuanced take because it it kind of talks about the relationship that both of these groups have with each other i did see kind of backlash to this article and saying that on twitter saying that it was like a bad take and how using asian aesthetic should not be conflated with like violent anti-blackness which i totally agree with those are not the same thing at all and they should never be kind of discussed at the same kind of level but i think just talking about the nuances within the kind of relationship that asian americans and black americans have with each other is just a really it's a really important start to this conversation how we can continue to grow with each other and stand in solidarity with each other we need to have these really difficult kinds of conversations i don't know mia you wrote the article as well what did you th- what did you think about it? Yeah, I think I don't have it in front of me right now, so we should fact check this mm-hmm. afterwards. But I do feel like the author made the point that like we're not putting these two, you know, violence that kills people and more of like a cultural violence at the same level, but rather in order to start to like mend some of the problems like anti-blackness in Asian communities, like we have to understand how the two groups interact or don't or borrow or steal or right like these are all things that kind of have to come um before we can start to find solutions and Mm -hmm. i I saw some feedback on twitter that was like calling it a non-solution solution but i really don't know that there's one like 10 step plan to alleviate or stop these Mm -hmm. things happening Mm -hmm. because cultural borrowing has always and probably will always continue to happen Mm -hmm. so i think it's more just like mindful mindful usage or um, maybe more of like an acknowledgement and a hat tip to another culture rather than 
just straight up like using it for mostly monetary gain um but yeah I don't think there needs to be one solution I don't have a solution and the author didn't have one other than like here's the background and here's what you should know and here's how both groups have historically um used another culture in a new or I guess like less contextualized less accurate way do you think cultural borrowing, cultural appropriation are very different things or similar? What, what, what do you guys think about that? I think that's what makes the the art, the topic so controversial and um, polarizing is because mm-hmm. there really isn't like a hard and fast rule or a line that mm-hmm. um, you can identify and say like someone crossed it or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes it really hard for outside groups or like people outside of these ethnic or racial circles, like, why it's so hard for people to understand it if they're not part of that group. Because mm-hmm. there is, and even within the group, there's, like, diverging opinions because no group is homogenous, as we right. know. So it's I think it's really, really sticky. And it's, unfortunately, one of the main ways that we discuss race mm-hmm. in, in the public sphere, I think, right now. And um, I don't really know how new of an idea this is but i feel like a lot of people like this is the only forum or contact to race relations that they have so it kind of ends up being like the end-all be-all of racism and that's obviously a problem yeah i think a lot of kind of the discourse about appropriation just becomes very policing it's a lot of you can't do this if you're not xyz and i think that is a very problematic approach because as you said, cultural borrowing and just like being influenced or inspired by other cultures is always going to happen. There's no way to stop that kind of thing from happening. Um, It's just how culture has always worked and how humans have always interacted with each other. Um, I think, as you said, like being mindful of it and like understanding it um, and coming at it from a place of, I guess, more appreciation than just like taking or stealing Mm -hmm. but then again that's a really hard line to cross because anyone can claim like oh i appreciate this culture even though clearly like it's being mocked or it's not being given it's due like research or diligence or you know all of that so yeah it is a really really sticky topic and that's why i've kind of avoided wanting to talk about it because it's like i need to gather my thoughts on it what we were saying before when we were playing this episode is that appropriation discourse is just really exhausting at this point honestly um and similar to what you said i think back to the chi pao incident like it's always an easy response of the person being called out to say i'm just appreciating this culture similarly to what the girl who wore the chi pao to prom said and i read an article about this and they were saying like it's not really cultural appropriation because if she was appropriating chinese culture she would have mocked it and like made fun of foot binding and made a whole mockery out of it but instead she was just wearing the dress that she thought was beautiful and so i think yeah it, it is hard to call it it is hard drawing line of is it barring or is it appropriation because mm-hmm. yeah there's just like no clear boundaries and i think that's why there's just constant back and forth and which makes it exhausting to talk about also with that like back to Kind of like the the phenomenon of the internet has definitely contributed to this. Just like the the outrage culture and the call out culture um, of like canceling people instead of like educating them. Um, and I understand in this certain situation with the girl who wore it to prom, like she had a response that was 
like, oh, uh, what did she say? Uh, well, was like, I think her first responses were just saying that everyone was being ignorant. Oh, yeah, she was, like, super defensive, right? And, yeah. like, obviously when you're trying to educate someone, that's, like, not the response that you want. You don't want to deal with someone who's defensive because they're not in a place where they're ready to learn or, like, take critique. Or um, just kind world. of victimizing themselves. Yeah, exactly. Um, but also, like, we have to take a step back and think about, like, how effective and how productive are these kinds of conversations. Um, and I understand, like... The internet is kind of like a vacuum. Like you have these kind of you have you have these interactions with people in just like these 180 character whatever like discourse conversations, right? But when we have things when we sit down and talk to each other like in this podcast and like are able to hash things out fully and like go more in depth, um, it's much more effective. And I understand like it's really hard like for that to happen on the internet. But we have to be careful about using the language of the oppressor, basically, which is basically you can do this and you can't do that. Mm. Um, and we have to be mindful of that um, and frame things in a way that can like be progressive and foster growth rather than like just canceling people because they frustrate us. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I know that's hard, especially like whiteness makes it really, really difficult. And um, we don't want to give people a way to take further advantage of us or to further like colonize us in a way Mm -hmm. um but i think like these things just need to be given further thought yeah and i think part of why it's so easy to participate in call-out culture and claiming things as being culturally appropriated is because at the end of the day it's really about power and who has power over what Mm -hmm. culture what is being appropriated and so of course it's yeah, it might be offensive to for me to see, like, my culture's clothing or whatever being appropriated, but by me calling that out, it's giving me the power to claim it back. But then, in a way, that's also kind of, like you were saying, recycling the same systems of oppression used by oppressors. And I don't think that's really productive, mm-hmm. especially in appropriation discourse. Yeah, especially, like, attacking an individual rather than, like, So if you're going to attack an individual or, like, call them out, you also have to look at the larger picture and look at the systems that cause these things to happen. So, like, yeah, an individual can make make a really ignorant choice, such as wearing a cheap out of prom, but then also why why was that made for her consumption, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So I think we need to further analyze that and like why why is there a market for this why does this exist why does this kind of dynamic exist and it um kind of also goes back to colonization and capitalism Mm -hmm. and like how whiteness has always kind of taken from these cultures um and so a call out should be you know analyzing that as well instead of like just picking out an individual and like doxing them or what you know whatever that entails but yeah, I think one of the responses to it also was an article that the New York Times wrote. That I'm to. very mad. Yes. <laughs> yeah, as resident journalist, I'm like ready to go in on this. Um, Spill the tea. <laughs> I So, right, this girl is not the first or the last person to have a poor choice for a prom dress and respond really like... I, I think I think her response was like very ungraceful. Um, but there was this one piece that... I think particularly just added fuel to the fire, at least for me and in circles that I kind of run in, um, which tends to be a lot of journalists and writers. But so do you want to click the link? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the New York Times um, did a story about this girl on on Twitter who had been kind of getting all this backlash after she wore a chi pao to prom. And the 
a journalist who's Asian um, is based in Taiwan and spoke to several uh, citizens there, Chinese people there. And basically the conclusion that everyone had was like, I don't get why Americans are angry at this. And the piece was used, I think, on Twitter that I saw in defense of the girl who wore mm. the chipao to prom. The problem with the piece is that it really doesn't go into how Asians and Asian Americans, yes, there's a difference, right? Like mm-hmm. how, why their thinking might be different and why some people might be angry, but others are not. I was born in Japan and grew up half of my life in Japan. We moved back and forth between Japan and Appleton, Wisconsin. So you can imagine how different it is, but people, it's true. Like Asian countries, for the most part, they're very homogenous. I was, our family was the only, one of the only mixed families that we encountered, that I ever encountered there. The percentage of foreigners who live in Japan is very, very low because it's really hard for foreigners to move there, even with a spouse or even with a job or a visa or whatever. So they don't have the same experience that Japanese Americans have of being in the minority Mm -hmm. or being a marginalized group. That just doesn't exist there because, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's like the the number of people who aren't Japanese in Japan is so so minor it's just minute that it doesn't it doesn't even matter so it it would make sense that you know people in China or Japan or wherever um would look at the anger in the US and not really understand why people might be angry or why people might consider it problematic and this conflation in this New York Times article of Asians and Asian Americans I think is one of the one of a it's a great starting point to talk about how little we discuss race and especially I think most Americans don't really know how to talk about Asian Americans, mm-hmm. um, which is why this right, like this dress thing, kind of blew up, and people were like, "Well, look, the Chinese aren't mad," but it's just in reality, like it, I think it highlights and underscores how little Asian American issues and Asian Americans are talked about, and how 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 few the opportunities are that we actually get the mic and get to say, like, this is why we're angry. Mm -hmm. And the piece, you know, it doesn't quote a single Asian American. And I don't understand how you could call that, like, the piece was just, I think, really cheap and ended up doing more harm than good. It didn't explain anything. It also seems like the people quoted in this article and the article itself is being tokenized, um, like you were Mm -hmm. saying, to defend the girl wearing the chipao and I think I I find a lot of like similar incidents that's where the person siding with the oppressor or in the wrong always tries to seek out someone in that group that's being wronged to be the token voice to prove that they're right. It reminds me of like a few years ago Avril Lavigne came out with that <laughs> Hello Kitty oh song oh and God. <laughs> like filmed the whole video of it and basically in the video she I don't even know how to describe it. It's like very what it's like stereotypically j- Japanese and like colorful and cutesy and all of that and it really like similar to this story it received a lot of backlash from asian americans and then they had like articles like the new york times piece where they were interviewing interviewing people in japan who said they loved avril lavigne they weren't offended by it at all she was just like paying homage to them and yeah so i think incidences like this they're not unique i think you're going to always find people being tokenized for that point of view where they're defending the oppressor. Mia, as like an Asian American journalist, how do you think that coverage could be 
improved or like how what is the state of like Asian American coverage right now? I think it's really fucking shitty. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and this is actually a really big interest of mine and a lot of the work that I do centers around this. But I think in the last maybe two years, I've really been interrogating what what the state of Asian America is. And honestly, like whether that term is useful, I think mm. this is a bigger conversation that warrants maybe several episodes, but what do we mean when we say Asian American is the question that I keep coming back to. Um, I think immediately the biggest problems in coverage of Asian American communities is the homogenization and the flattening of cultures and the diversity within our community because my experience is very different than Hmong Americans. Mm -hmm. My experience is really different than Filipina, a Filipina mm -hmm. American. Um, my, my experience is different than even a Japanese American born here mm -hmm. who doesn't speak a word of Japanese, right? And all of these experiences are valid, but Unfortunately, I think it goes back to the thing that white and also, you know, non-white and non-Asian Americans don't really know how to talk about our community. Mm -hmm. They don't really understand that um, when you say Asian, it's not just like high achieving right. um, Asians. And that's actually really, really harmful to most of our most of our community. Um, so immediately, I think. I mean, newsroom diversity is something that's talked about a ton, but like we need these voices to be covering their own communities. And also we need journalists to like not be using the lazy shorthand. And the only art, it can't be that the only articles that you have to write about are about Asians opposing affirmative action <laughs> and cultural <laughs> no. appropriation, right. which is literally like the two topics that, and food um, that <laughs> journalism seems to be fixated on. So, yeah, I hate it. Yeah, I feel like the whole affirmative action thing, like, it just, it's like a blanket statement of all of Asian America. Like, Asian Americans hate affirmative it's action. It's so bad. Actually, not to roast the New York Times for like an hour, but there was this other piece about a lawsuit um, on affirmative action that is, uh, it's, it's a group suing a university, I forget where it is, but a university for their affirmative action policies. And the plaintiffs are an eight, among others, uh, there's an Asian American, I think it's a Chinese American group. Um, but the article, swear to God, did not quote a single Asian in it. They quoted <laughs> white lawyers and um, I think a couple like school officials literally did not ask anyone. And also that's like not, it's just not, I hate, I hate the, the, the writing around affirmative action. Um, nothing ever, every article seems to just conveniently gloss over, sorry, this is like getting into something no, totally no. unrelated, <laughs> but every article glosses over the fact, the convenient fact, right, that the people who benefit most from affirmative action are white people. This is a fact. Like, white women, I think, are the people who benefit the most. Journalism for Asian America is really bad, but there are people doing really, really good work. And, yeah, I, I, um... There's like several magazines that I really like. Um, Banana, Banana magazine. I don't know if anyone follows. And I follow them on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, there. It's all about like Asian America. Um, NBC Asian America, I think, does That's really, good really one. good, hard hitting journalism that takes into account South Asian and Southeast mm. Asian and East Asian and Middle Eastern issues. Right. Like it's very, it's it's very very good. Um, so yeah, there's there's folks doing really good work, but um, I think in terms of mainstream media, there's not there's not really that much nuance put to the reporting. Yeah, unfortunately, because like what you're saying reminds me too of how 
mainstream journalism and media, like you're saying, just fixates on affirmative action, food, and anything exotic. And that just definitely contributes to this thing of viewing Asian America as still exotic and through like an Orientalist view. Mm -hmm. And that also homogenizes Asian Americans and Asians too, because both groups are vastly different, but also viewed through the same lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like people don't know that there's a difference between like... I don't know, like K-pop and <laughs> right, like Haley Kyoko or something. Right. <laughs> oh my god. Really right. <laughs> I mean, I will say the cool thing about K-pop is, uh, did you guys hear this week? Uh, BTS is number one on yes. Billboard. It's like yes. the first time. Is it like yes. the first time? Like, it's amazing. K-pop group has been. I think so. Number, well, Gangnam Style, I'm sure, was yeah, number one right. at some point. Yeah, but it's it's a feat for sure. It's amazing. <laughs> I saw a tweet uh, from my friend the other day who's he's um. Asian-American and writes for Vulture, and he tweeted, like, BTS is number one in the charts, and I'm still... And men still continue to ignore me in the apps. (laughs) (laughs) It's so real. It's like, where's our fame? Yeah. But, like, even back to the whole, like, Asians in Asia versus Asian-Americans, like, Mm -hmm. that article completely ignores the fact that, like, the West and America... like the United States has been like elevated in these cultures Um, yeah when I go back to the Philippines being the American cousin is like the best thing in the world for them like Mm -hmm. they put America on this pedestal because America just represents wealth it represents opportunity it represents all of these really really these things that like the rest of the world basically or like the global south you know kind of um admires Mm -hmm. and so when it's like oh americans are wearing our things or you know i recognize our culture it's it being validated it's to them it's validating yeah because it's like oh the people who are the markers of like global culture have taken our thing and like elevated it and given it a platform and like i think that's the kind of lens that that's being looked through that's colonialism that's right? colonialism. like we need like a little like jingle like oh my god <laughs> i feel like wait, we need to do that every time because we mention colonialism all the time so every time we'll we'll definitely have that <laughs> yeah so like that whole entire take is just a result of like colonialism and it's a case for imperialism basically like mm-hmm. like yeah americans can do whatever they want basically mm-hmm. um and just like the, I think there's a sense of like, oh, they see it, they see our, they know who we are, they know what mm-hmm. this is, or they think it's like cool enough to wear or something. So it's like this, I mean, obviously it's generations of ingrained racism and imperialism like that makes mentality. them think, right? Like this acknowledgement is um, complimentary, but they, it's, and I'm, I'm trying to be careful not to say, like, they don't understand, but, you know, the, the context is different for mm-hmm. um, Asians growing up in the United States and Asians elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's tough. Yeah. You don't want to impose anything on them, right. but also you have to acknowledge that folks think differently based on where they live and right. that context. What are you guys' thoughts when it comes to, like, food? And I know the appropriation, like, discourse goes deep into food as well right mm-hmm. um like i i remember i think it was bon appetit or some food magazine like a couple years ago they 
did a video showcasing a white chef who had his own pho restaurant. Um, <laughs> and then he was like... That's just laughable. I know. And in the video, he was like teaching you people... You know that's gross. He was teaching too. people how to eat. Sucks. <laughs> I know. And he was like teaching people how to eat pho. Bye. Um, <laughs> what? But like, it's hard because I think when it comes to appropriation, for me, my opinions vary. Like when it comes to stuff like the cheap pow or clothing being appropriate, I think where I fall on that is like, I get how it's painful and offensive but also i also part of me is like it's ex- exhausting it's kind of a waste of your energy into like such a lazy pot like use of politics but when it comes to food it's for me i feel like it's different I, don't, I can't explain why i feel differently but it's like that's something that i like literally live and breathe and eat every single day and mm-hmm. to kind of see it being like cheapened i don't know because i yeah. think I get it, though. Real talk, like, food is one of the most personal things there is, right. I think. Like, mm-hmm. it's sustenance. It's you literally die without it. And so for me, I understand um, where you're coming from. Like, the the tide, from my experience, the turning of the tide for and against sushi has been so swift and crazy. Yeah. Like, growing up in school, in any, you know, social things, one of the first questions I would get from people who are not Japanese... Were, was, is it true you eat raw fish, right? <laughs> like, have you ever eaten raw fish um, from adults and people my age, right? Like, everyone. But, yo. It's so normalized now. I like, know. Oh, it's sushi. Yeah, like, it's crazy. It's a social status, this social marker. It is. And th- this happened within the last, like, probably 10 to 15 mm-hmm. years, I would say, in my experience. And you see it happening also with, like, pho or... Right. right? There's... And, like, ramen. Yeah. Ramen. Yeah. yeah. And these are all foods that a lot of us grew up being embarrassed about. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's what is, like, hard is um, you have you have the, the context of, like, being ashamed or being mm-hmm. embarrassed or having to... Um, hide this or not bring this for lunch or having, you know, the anxiety of having to explain to people what you're eating. Mm -hmm. Um, And so food is inherently and I think intensely political. Absolutely. And it's also like Asian Americans are the most visible when it comes to food. Mm -hmm. Like our food is more visible than we are. Yes. Oh my God. Yes, Hillary. (laughs) (laughs) Put that on a shirt. I remember growing up um, so there's this Filipino dish called pancit, and it's basically just stir-fried noodles. Um, mm. But my parents just for some reason would wake up early in the morning and cook it before I went to school. And it's just made with a lot of garlic. So a lot of um, sautéed garlic and onion. And my clothes would smell like it leaving <laughs> the house. And like I would walk into rooms at school. I would walk into like a classroom or whatever and someone would be like, does it smell like egg rolls in here? Because literally, oh not only is the only Asian girl walking into a classroom, but like I did smell like egg. I smelled like food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it got to a point where I came home like crying one day and told my dad, like, you cannot cook before I leave in the morning. Please don't ever do that. And then he stopped for like years and years and years. And then one day in high school, I I guess he forgot that I didn't want him Mm. to cook. And so he cooked something and I had gotten in my car to go to school and I just like started sobbing. Mm. It was like, it was so silly, but I I was like, dad, I can't go to school. Like you cooked something and now all of my clothes in my room smell like food. The clothes that I'm wearing smell like food. My hair smells like food. I can't go to school. I was so embarrassed. Um, And that's like how internalized that got for me. And so like, yeah, the whole, I do definitely do resonate with the whole, food thing like knowing that growing up this was something we were taught to be really really ashamed of Mm -hmm. um but now it's like this 
cultural marker. Um, now we have white people explaining how to eat our food. <laughs> I know. Literally, <laughs> so just for context, I just moved to Chicago like nine months ago, and I've had like a whole slew of white men tell me where to get the best ramen and like explain to me why it's the best. And I recently went to the place, allegedly redacted. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna plug them, but I went to the allegedly best place in Chicago to get ramen. And I'm sorry, I was that person. I like told them what was wrong with their ramen. <laughs> As a Japanese person. I, I literally I was like a little bit tipsy when I got there and so I was like, just so you know, like my last name is Sato, I'm the Japanese one. I might be kind of annoying about this, but I'm sorry. <laughs> and they were like, Okay. Here's the thing. They're like, Wow. You roll up here at nine thirty drunk and you're telling us all these things, but like I wasn't I'm actually not sorry at all. Who is she? That bitch. That bitch. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to remember next time you come in. Oh, you probably won't even come in next I time. I mean, it was okay. It was, it was okay. Um, yeah, because I think for, for me, it's like, people can say like Hmong food is appropriating other cultures or borrowing other cultures' food too, because it's like a mix between Thai, Lao, and Vietnamese food since we have no homeland. And so that's like the region where a lot of our food comes from. And so I, I remember going to the Thai New Year Festival a couple weeks ago, and that was like some of the most authentic Thai food or like, best Thai food I've had in all of Chicago whereas before that I just based on where I would just go based on people's like recommendations and why people would be like why people would tell me like oh yeah this place is like BYOB and I feel like every Thai place in Chicago is BYOB now and that's how you know it's not good Mm. I also had a friend like last year text me because um I live very close to uptown where uh, as I said before, it's like low Vietnam, all the Vietnamese restaurants and businesses are here. And I had a friend last year text me who was white asking if I had any recommendations for a good Vietnamese restaurant. But at the end, he added, um, can you recommend places that like are clean and like smell good? And I think that was like <laughs> oh so God. offensive. That's such a backhanded comment, too, because, totally. you know, a lot of you know what he's saying. Yeah, you know what he's saying. And I also I mean, having family members have their own like rest like Hmong restaurants back in the Twin Cities. It's like I feel like some of the best and most authentic food comes from places that smell like mothballs and like they don't give a shit about making maintaining it to look the best because like all that work goes into the food. And like it kind of tells you too who they're catering to, right? right? Like if and this is, you know, part of it is also survival um for ethnic communities. Like if in order to attract customers you have to have it smell or look or mm-hmm. taste a certain way that's a i know it's another kind of a it complicates the argument um about like appropriation within food is what you have to do and mm. change about your cultural food in order to survive in america mm. um so like sushi burritos right like i think it's really fucking weird <laughs> um and i am not about that at all but i also i'm not about to yell at some you know person who mm. might not be either Mexican or Japanese, but is making a sushi burrito because like that's you know they need to make a living. So that's I mean point. I don't you know I don't come down too hard unless it's like some like you said like a white man with a pho restaurant. Um. Anyway, yeah. There's this other New York Times article. <laughs> this is from last year. Um. And it was talking conveniently about bubble tea. So I thought it was fitting to discuss yes. it. Um, but they wrote this, like, really hilarious piece that was like, check out this weird new food thing we found. It's called boba. And they used 
really like strange and icky words like blobs and they called it like foreign and weird and um interviewed all these people saying like yeah it's this new hot trend um when in fact it's a very um i think a recognizable at least among api circles of like a very distinctly asian american um cultural touchstone or like uh food and you know, just like young people, I think, millennials especially. And they actually got a ton of backlash from their readers really eloquently saying, like, pulling it apart, why this is wrong and the people you quoted, like, why did you quote them but not these people? And the way that you just framed the entire premise of the article is problematic. And this was back when the Times had their reader center. Well, they still might have the reader center, but they basically had this, like, ombudsman who... Um, would moderate conversation that readers have and then have like official New York Times responses to comments and they actually went back and revised heavily the article um, because they recognized that they kind of fucked up with that Mm -hmm. Um, but this is just one example in like very weird what I find very strange and uncomfortable coverage of Asian Mm -hmm. food and Asian culture it's always um othering i think and conveniently they can never find asians to talk to (laughs) like they're yeah right like i i don't know but yeah new york times step it up and you i mean it reminds me too like you see stuff like buzzfeed making videos with a lot of like cultural food too with this the same mentality of kind of not just colonizing it but kind of like portraying the food as weird it's it's weird and exotic and that's why we're gonna show people reacting to how like reacting to tasting it yeah, yeah like, it's like using it's a punchline yeah. yeah using yeah. culture as clickbait yeah which like honestly i i fall bait to those as well because <laughs> <laughs> they're really entertaining but like the underlying thing about it is like i saw someone some some video about like little kids trying filipino food or whatever um and it was cute but it's also just like why just why mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah you know yeah it tells you who they Who's see their, their audience, audience yeah. as yeah, their audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I talk a lot about YouTube because I watch a lot of YouTube Asian <laughs> like Asian American people on YouTube but there's this like pair of brothers called the Fung Brothers and they make all sorts of videos but a lot they have a series where they go and um, meet like restaurants or like friends of theirs from different Asian cultures and to have them show them their culture's food and I think it's a really great way of um, shining, shedding light on other Asian cultures food without having this mentality of um, making the punchline out of it or making it seem like it's really weird. And I think, like, they had an episode on Hmong food and it was, like, and, like, they go in and try and talk about the history behind it and why it's important to that culture. And I think that's a really good way of um, representing, cult- like, different food and different cultures. I think that just underscores, too, like, there's a way to not necessarily appropriate but engage with other cultures in a really respectful educational way. Mm-hmm. Like... I, I've also, you know, I have friends who are all different kinds of Asians, and the reality is when you ask in a open, like, if you go in with it, with an open mind and an open heart, and you're humble and gracious and understanding that you're a guest in their culture, they are, people are happy to share mm-hmm. where they come from, at least for me, like, if... Mm-hmm either of y'all asked a question I would be happy to share and happy to explain things and happy to take you places and Mm -hmm. show you how to eat things but I think 
cultural appropriation is really frustrating because it the premise of it is that it's removed from the context. It's completely just this object in the the world that the appropriator lives in. So that's why, like, for people, I can understand why seeing a girl in a traditional Chinese dress at an American prom, like, mm-hmm. doing, you know, taking pictures with her, her all of her white friends, like, why that's jarring and why yeah. that's like, wait a minute, like, it's not just a prom dress and it doesn't even look... I saw people being like, that's not vintage, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's nothing what you think it is. It's... You probably don't even know the country that it comes from. You just consider it, like, an Asian dress. Like, that's why... That's why people get pissed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, there are other things that I would rather talk about, but I, I get why it's frustrating. Yeah. I mean, if she hadn't responded the way she that she did, I probably would have like not cared that much about it, kind of what mm-hmm. Hillary was saying before. It's not... I think we just focus... Or call out culture just focuses all of its energy and calling out the individual and like doxing them and dragging them to filth instead of just like talking about the systems that lead up to it. And so I think that's a much better use of time if you're going to try to contribute and be productive with appropriation discourse and mm-hmm. debates. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but even at the end of the day, I, for me personally, I just feel like it's exhausting. And I see a bunch of like Facebook pages that write the same types of articles every single week about <laughs> someone new appropriating Asian culture. And I just think the amount of time and effort you put into writing the same story with the same template, you could talk more about like appropriation of black culture or mm-hmm. other issues that are less talked about, but probably just equally important, or if yeah. not more. Talk about the things that, like, literally kill us, right? Right. Like, let's talk about, like, <laughs> suicide and Asian-American women, mm. women, po- female populations. Or mm. talk about, like, how we don't vote. Yeah. Or right. how... The tangible things. Yeah, like, how some of our, some sub-Asian, gr- like, Asian subgroups have, like, crazy high poverty levels, like... There are so many other things, I think, to focus our energy on. And we can still talk about, like, don't use XYZ cultural object or thing in this context, but it has to be happening in parallel with things that are, like, really, really, really bad, mm-hmm. I think. Way worse than a white girl wearing one of our dresses. Yeah, and I think my my frustration on top of on top of that is that these things, like, center the appropriator, or they center whiteness. And mm-hmm. I'm just like... Honestly, I'm just so tired of it. I'm I'm tired of talking about what they do, what white people do, what whiteness does. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, like, so much of our energy is, like, used to just, used as a reaction or used for reactionary purposes. And I'm, it's literally exhausting to the point where I had to mute the words cultural appropriation because I was just done with it. I was done. I was tired of seeing anger. And, like, I am angry about it as well. But, like when it's when you're inundated with it it's just so much um i'm just like i don't even want i don't want to see people doing it and i don't even want to see people talking about it anymore because i'm just like i'm done with centering my politics around people that are not willing to grow you know so yeah that's a good way to put it and i think Mm -hmm. like last thing for me is like i think being part of a group where you're already not represented in basically anything appropriation is hits hard but also easy to react to because that's what you see that's like a physical representation of you whether it's a authentic or inauthentic and so i think that's why it's so easy to latch on to yeah. mm-hmm. like these um, things take yeah. the place of us right yeah. and yeah. that's why it's that's why it's harmful so there's we should still keep talking about it but I am also very tired. I don't <laughs> like. Let's just leave it at like Chun Li is a banger, and right. I don't, <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye.
thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks um, to Mia as well. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was so fun. Anytime. I'm going to come back every single Do you, recording. Do you have any uh, social media plugs you want to Sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's I'm at, at Mia R. Sato, S-A-T-O. Mm-hmm. Um, my Twitter is a steaming pile of garbage. <laughs> and we somehow stand. I'm still employed despite <laughs> like tweeting all this nonsense. But that's probably where you can see me. You can catch me the most. Well, thank you so much for being on our show. We thank really you. appreciate it. So yeah, like always, follow us on social media and leave us reviews and comments. And we can't wait to talk to you guys next week. Also, happy Pride Month. <laughs> Yay! Happy Pride Month. Happy, happy Month. Belated. End of AAPI Heritage Month. Yes. I, can't believe it said that. I get two full months, guys. I no, can't believe it. Totally. May was lit too. It was so fun. I know. It was a good month. All right, bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Hey yo, look like I'm going for a swim. Dunk on them now, I'm swinging off the rim. Bitch ain't coming off the bench While I'm coming off the court fully drenched Here goes some hater rain, get your thirst quenched Style doing them in this Burberry trench These birds copy every word, every inch But gang gang got the hammer and the wrench